This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&A. I have a weird question to start out with. Is any of you an owner of a small computer fix-it shop? I have a pile of stuff that I don't know what to do with that isn't really worth anything, but would be a pretty big help to somebody who could leave it in a drawer and just use it as needed. And I'd love to donate most of it and maybe even swap one or two things out for other used, mostly junk parts that I can implement into my setup. But, you know, just reach out in the normal places if you are an owner of one of those. And if not, I'm sorry to waste your time. Let's jump into the Q&As. First up, over on Patreon, Weijlo has been really liking the new RetroTank 5X scan lines and wants to know if there's any other projects out there doing the same with HDMI inputs for things like Blu-rays and DVDs. And the short answer to that question is not right now today, but you could still use the RetroTank 5X if you set whatever you have to 480p and then use a very cheap HDMI to component video converter. That's retroRGB.link forward slash cheap DAC. Any of the ones there should work fine, especially for 480p. And you could totally do that now and take your PlayStation 3, feed whatever you have through it, add scan lines, and it looks pretty good. Now, the what you were directly asking for, or at least I think, like a, an HDMI scan line generator... One at least exists, but the one that I know of is pretty terrible. It takes HDMI, converts it to analog, adds just horizontal line scan lines, no masks, and then converts it back to HDMI, and there's resolution limitations. It's it's one of those things that was a neat idea and probably has one or two great uses, but not what you're talking about. What will be coming out is, I think, this is an assumption, but I think it's a pretty pretty realistic assumption, is that any more modern scalers that are going to come out with HDMI inputs should have some more scanline options. And, you know, one easy way to point at that is having the Pixel FX Mork, Mork, Morph, <laughs> have at least the same scanlines that the N64 Digital does, which are great. So, at the very least, I would assume that. I mean, it's an assumption, but it seems like a pretty safe assumption. So I think any scalers coming forward should have that. And I do completely agree that that's something that could be something that people prefer. Now, it's all preference. There's no right or wrong answer. Scan lines don't add or remove any lag. So if your eyes like it, it's a win. If your eyes don't like it, it's not. But I will say that the video that I just put up, the LCD CRT versus real CRT, the original 480i footage of that was a DVD to show exactly what you're talking about, and I uploaded a draft and immediately got hit with a copyright strike, which in hindsight was a good thing because I actually like the footage that I chose a heck of a lot better, but it's just one of those things where I would have liked to show you and I'll figure out a way to do that at some point. Uh, also, um, looks like Weaselow likes the whatnot streams and the collaborations and think it would be great to do one with a video game store or even big time collectors or people that are trying to offload some of their collections like Destiny. I agree. I would love to do all of those things. I would love to go to the video game stores that I love, that I know and trust the owners and go in there and do one if they're willing. I haven't had a, t a chance to reach out to them yet. I would also love to, to work with anybody trying to offload a collection to at least help 
And of course, I always love doing projects with Destiny. She's a blast to hang out with. And we had a couple of other things scheduled, but between the move and now I live so far away, it's kind of a pain to work on stuff. But you will see more with us in the future at some point. We had some pretty fun ideas planned. So yeah, I want to do all of those things. I would just suggest that you politely tweet and you know, or wherever on social media you're on and copy me and whatnot in it because I think they need to know that you would like to see this. Uh, sometimes it's really hard going into these platforms and if you don't have the right person that you're working with, they basically go, you got 50,000 followers on YouTube. Yeah, all right, well, here's your account, do what you want. And they don't really see all of the community that I like to work with that I like to do these crossovers with. So I think it's really up to all of you to help with that. And I'm not saying help me, which I guess it does sort of benefit me. This is really for the things that you just mentioned. I want to bring more unique creators onto whatnot, but I want to do it on times where I'm not competing with some of their paid sellers so that I'm not going up against people where I have no chance of having a casual viewer walk in. I want to make sure to work with them so that we could pick a time and a promotion so that if somebody just opens their phone, like I'm bored, let's see what's on whatnot. Oh, Hey, what's that? That's weird. They'll be clicking on me weird and not something else weird. Somebody dressed up like an upside down elf or something like that, which I'm making that shit up, obviously. Although I would totally dress up and hang upside down like an elf if that got more clicks and got more exposure for people in the gaming scene. So yeah, feel free to to message them because it's just one of those things that they got to know that we want to see these things. I mean, Whatnot covers not just retro games, but a ton of other things. And I don't think retro is even close to their biggest audience. So we just have to politely and respectfully remind them that we're here to buy this awesome stuff and we want to see more cool and weird and different things on there. I hope all that came out the right way. I have a tendency to say things, especially when I'm tired at the end of the day, that fall out of my face the wrong way. But I meant every bit of that answer with positivity, especially the scanline stuff. You all know I love that shit. Next, Plutonio said they got an LG StudioWorks 700's PC CRT a couple weeks ago and have a strange problem with colors. When it's plugged into their modern desktop computer, the image is all washed up, colors are not vivid, and black levels suffer a lot. This doesn't happen, though, when they plug it into a Windows XP era laptop. It all seems fine. Another strange thing is that on my modern PC, be it running Windows or Linux, the colors on the monitor OSD are always much better than the one the OS shows, so that made me think there was a problem. For example, a pure white screen will look all washed out and bluish on their Windows desktop, but the white background of the on-screen display will always look awesome and crisp. They've obviously tried the usual suspects, calibrated the monitor via the OSD, via Windows, plugged it in via native VGA, via an analog DVI to VGA pass-through adapter, via a digital DVI to VGA converter, and an HDMI to VGA converter. Uh, lastly, they tried both a dedicated AMD GPU and integrated Intel GPU, but the problem still remains. They also found online the original ICC profile LG would have given you with a monitor and installed it, but that just managed to darken everything a lot. Am I missing something? I can't understand why modern hardware should behave this way. It's almost like it overdrives the monitor in some way. Um, so that's, that is a very interesting question, and that's something I've seen before. And first of all, thank you for doing all of those troubleshooting steps. Normally for a longer question, I would skim through it, but I wanted everybody to hear the things that you did because that's everything I would have asked you to do anyway. So you've, you've done all of the right troubleshooting. Now we just got to figure out the solution. And to be perfectly honest, 
I've run into this a couple of times before, and I don't really know what the answer is. And it's kind of strange, because I thought I had... I. Well, I definitely have issues with Windows 10 and 11 with certain types of video outputs, and especially if it detects that your monitor is not... Like, let's say you have a 4K monitor, but you need to send it 1080p for whatever reason. There's been a few times that I've seen weird things happen where Windows will actually send the monitor 4K, but scale it differently to look like 1080p. And I I tried reproducing it, and... Seven times out of ten, it did it, and then three times it didn't. So I started messing around with edids, and I really couldn't figure out what was going on. And then I wasn't sure if it was just the three monitors I had. So there's something weird about Windows 10 and 11 with that. Um, the On the flip side, though, with Windows 7, I get the same problem that you're talking about. So there's got to be something going on with how Windows processes the image. It could be that it's detecting... VGA and saying, oh, this must be an old monitor, or it could be that it's sending compressed colors instead of full, you know, kind of like with HDMI, full or limited range. It could be that it's sending a different type of signal. And I would love to get to the bottom of this as well. The only tricky part, which I'm not sure why it's happening for you, but I didn't think this problem would occur in Linux. Now, maybe different builds of Linux would have different ways of of having this happen. Um, And I am far from a Linux expert, but that is something I'm going to be swinging around to pretty shortly anyway. So unfortunately for the short term, I would like to defer to the whole crowd who's listening and see if anybody has the time to chime in in the comments if they have the same issue. Um, But I don't have any solid solutions other than the only thing I tried once was swapping video cards, which somewhat made a difference, but you already did that with your internal and your, uh, the internal built-in graphics card versus your, your actual slotted graphics card. So kind of strange that this happens. And I'm sure that especially people who work on things like, um, you know, like Calamity and that crew that does all of the using PCs to go on RGB monitors, I bet you they would have more experience. So hopefully somebody could chime in. I'd love to know the answer myself. Uh, Also, you had some kind words to say it. Thank you. I appreciate it. And you wanted to end on this. You said you live less than an hour away from your parents and it frequently happens that you go visit for a few days. If they decide to bring a console with them, they always wrap it with all its accessories and at least two layers of bubble wrap, even if they know they're going to be the one to carry it with them in their car, being extra careful. (laughs) My girlfriend thinks I'm crazy, but I know you'll understand. You can never be too careful. Yeah, I 100% understand. I don't just do that with consoles. I do that with anything that's important to me. I've showed up at friends' houses with a box like this big where they go, the hell is that? And I'm like, oh, it's your camera. Like that's 10 times the size of the camera. Yeah. But I was on a subway. I was on a train. I was whatever else. And you know, so I wanted to make sure that if this thing fell down a flight of stairs, the box is going to get beat up, but not your stuff. So yeah, that, that actually does make me smile. I, I am a little nuts with that stuff, but Anybody that's bought expensive things on whatnot from me certainly knows that. I still laugh at the projector. I haven't heard back from that person, but it was a box in a box in a box. And I just, I I was really happy with how I shipped that. (laughs) A little ridiculous, but whatever. So uh, yeah, anyway, I, I really hope we can get to the bottom of this VGA output thing because I also would like to know the answer. Next, Timothy said they've seen the auction off and talk about DVD VCR combo players a few times, but they never really paid attention because they don't have a way to connect it to anything other than HDMI to their TVs, and they don't have a collection of VCR tapes laying around. However, they discovered a relative has a VCR DVD player in their basement, so maybe they would want to use it in the future. 
The questions are in general, why do you like DVD-VCR combos? What are their recommended use cases? Do you have any maintenance suggestions? And they have all equipment and expertise to recap it, so they might order the caps off of Mauser and do that. So I don't really like DVD-VCR combos. It just so happens that most of the time, in fact, every time I've seen anything other than an S-Video output from a VCR has been those combo players. Now, the majority of those combo players separate their outputs. So you get composite for your VHS side and then whatever else for the DVD side, including up to HDMI. However, I have seen and I've owned combo players that will output your VCR through component video. Now, you're then relying on the VCR's built-in three-comb filter and then going to component video. So that's one of those things where if the filter is better than the device that you're using and you have, let's say, an all-component video setup, that's the perfect device because now one input in your G-Comp switch is both your DVD player and your VHS player. And some of those even are able to deinterlace to 480p, which is usually pretty bad deinterlacing. The same chips that were built into TVs of that era, you know, the early flat panel era. But, you know, for your setup, maybe that's just what you need to get it done at that moment. Or maybe you're going into a RetroTank 5X and you're going to let that add scan lines or something. But... That's really the only reason that I like those combo players is because they generally have uh, the potential for more output options. There is that one based off of the Funai player that that scam company tried to sell a bunch uh, last year or two years ago or something like that. I warned everybody about that. Nobody listens. But um, but that original Funai player did everything to HDMI. And that thing was going in. Uh, Funai is a company that made... They are an OEM manufacturer, so they make it, and then you could either buy it and stick your name on it, or you buy the guts and put your case on it, so it might look completely different, except the back looks identical. And the reason those things were so popular and going for so much is because people were saying, oh, you can play your VCRs in 1080p through HDMI, and then they got it home, and they plugged it in, and they went, this looks like shit. A composite video player into my OLED TV looks better than this. So... Uh, you know, it's situational, right? Depending on the equipment you already own, dep depending on everything else, maybe that is what you were looking, what that person was looking for. Maybe if you set it to 480i, you get a really good job getting the original signal. I don't know, but generally I don't like the combos. I would like the individual ones. And also, depending on your use case, there's a lot of these people going around saying that this is the best VHS. That one, you know, you have to spend 500. I spent a hundred bucks on the JVC SVHS player that I got. Came with a remote. It looks brand new. It looks like they never used it and it works totally fine. And I'm completely happy with it. And I mean, this is somebody who spends thousands of hours in the past 10 years zooming into Link's face so you can see each individual pixel perfectly. So take take that into consideration when I say it's completely fine for my needs. So I just want to put all that into perspective for anybody out there trying to hunt one of these down. If you have an S-Video setup, look for an S-Video player, but you don't have to go crazy. The only people that should really be looking into these insane highest quality solutions are people that are obsessed with watching VHS tapes or people doing very important transfers. And if you're doing a very, very important transfer, you might even want to look into the Doomsday Duplicator project, which is a whole other discussion that I, I need to contact Chad and Simon again, because I loved the first interview we did. We got to do another one. Your last question, though, any maintenance suggestions? 
Anytime there's a capacitor in a device, it's going to dry out and die or leak out and die at some point. My personal opinion, not fact, my personal opinion is that when I take a device that's 20, 30 years old, I shine a very bright flashlight into it and I try to look for leakage. It's very hard to see leakage under surface mount caps, but I just try my best to take a look. And if there's no leakage, I get to it when I can, if it even matters to me. If there is leakage, I, I immediately decide, like, if th is this important to me? Then I got to recap it right now. Or usually pay Jose to do it for me. <laughs> Sorry, Jose. <laughs> but, um, but on the other side of things, you know, if it's a cheap, if it's a $10 VCR that you got from a Goodwill somewhere, you, you get it home, you play it for a little bit, you look in, there's leaky caps, decide what you want to do. At the very least, remove them, do a cap list or something, give the player away to somebody that might want to restore it. I don't know, strip it for parts, but... That's really the number one thing is just make sure there aren't a bunch of capacitors leaking all over, destroying something that you might potentially like. Because a cap that dries up and stops working means the player stops working, but a cap that leaks out could be unfixable at that point. Other than that, each player is going to have its own issue. Belt-driven ones are going to need new belts, just like CD-ROM trays that eject and uh, you know stuff like that. Um, I have one that's gear-driven that... The, it's a very good VCR too. You put the tape in, uh, you know, if you have it with the top off, it takes the tape, the actual magnetic tape outside of the, the cassette itself, and then it plays for about two seconds and stops. I have no idea what's wrong, and I really like this one. It's a Sony that Fudo told me about years ago that's got a Ferrugia processor in it that helps um, clean up the image a little. And I was, in fact, when Cousin Scott was coming over, that's one of the things I wanted to do was compare the S-Video one to that composite with the scalar, not scalar, processor in it, but it stopped working. So I got to figure out what that is, um, how to fix it, if it's worth fixing, and all that other stuff. So that's basically each, other than capacitors, each player is going to have its own individual thing to worry about. And I think cleaning's probably one. But once again, I would really look into each player and see what's the best methods. Um, you know, are there different, you know, forehead VCRs versus anything else? Like, I would do a little bit of research into it to see. But cleaning, capacitors, and then, of course, if there's anything broken, check anything else out from that perspective. Cam says, not a question, but for those of us that like Sanwa buttons, but prefer the feel of concave buttons like those in the U.S. arcades in the 80s and 90s, Arcade Shock sells injection-molded, color-matched replacement caps. You just pop out the convex ones and replace them with these. They're $1.60 each, really high quality, and don't change anything else besides or anything else about the sound or overall feel of the button. They basically just give you a concave Sanwa button. Cam then posted a link and said, as an aside, Sanwas aren't the current best arcade fight stick buttons around, though there's obviously some subjectivity to that. Crown, Samduska, SDB-202s are considered by many to be the best around at the moment. Um, thank you for every one of those tips. I'm going to leave links in all of the descriptions for everybody. And while you're right, all of that stuff is subjective. I think anybody who likes messing around with building their own arcade sticks or anything like that would want to hear that info. So thank you very much for sharing. Charles Madeer wanted to use a Super Metroid ROM hack to practice speedrunning via the Mister, and was running into compatibility issues with that one ROM. And I guess they were a little upset because nobody was really aware of any SNES ROM being unsupported by the Mister, especially one that doesn't use any sort of special chips. So, I mean, I have some kind of strong opinions about this, but I'm always open to change my mind. So you, anybody in the comments, feel free to to go ahead and try to get me to change my mind on this. But I feel like if 
A team of people have created a practice ROM for speedrunning on original hardware, and it doesn't work on anything other than original hardware, then they need to work with that other team to try to bring it up to speed. And the reason I have this opinion is because a lot of times people try to use certain bugs or exploits or weirdness on original consoles that shouldn't really be there. Maybe they're, they really are bugs, or maybe they're just things that no game took advantage of. And that's one of those things that you just need to make the developers aware of. And you also need to do it politely, and you need to make sure they know there's an audience for these things. Because don't forget, right, when you get the questions asked to you, and how they're presented are half the battle. And I'm going to give an example that's so dumb, but so spot on, is there's been a few videos I've made that were blood, sweat, and tears. I mean, 50, 60, 70 hours just on the video, not even including the research, just the testing and the shots and the B-roll and the presentation. And I load that thing up and 20 minutes after it goes live, one of the comments is, you know, you misspelled Bob in the end titles. And it's like, fuck you. That's what you're picking out after all that work. Whereas if a week went by, I'd see that comment and be like, holy crap, I watched that video 20 times before and I uploaded it. And I never would have caught that. Like when it was presented to me and how it was presented to me can often get a very different response. So I'm, I'm only saying that because you said you created the issue on their GitHub page, but there's a million issues with a lot of little tiny things. So my my point in rambling on about that story is just present this issue to the Mr. Team just with some patience and, and with some explanation as, hey, speedrunners rely on this. Everybody loves the Mr. Project. So could you work with us to get this working? And I'm, I'm sure at some point they'd be willing to help. Whereas if you go in guns blaring, which you did not in your post, I just saying if you go in there and you're like your stupid piece of shit mister doesn't work no one's gonna help and i don't blame them so feel free to change my mind about that if you think that i'm looking at this the wrong way if uh if you think that the project is being presented a certain way um you know there there's also the flip side in that and maybe you would still have bought a mister and you still completely totally happy with everything if you had known from the beginning that hey, you know, no core will ever be flawless and perfect, but, you know, the team's going to try their best. Maybe their documentation could use a little more updating, or maybe YouTubers that gush over it could be a little bit more honest about some of the bugs. For me personally, the reason I don't concentrate on bugs is because by the time I talk about them, usually they're gone. And compared to almost every other solution out there, the bugs are like a fraction of what other solutions are. So like go pick up an at games console and tell me that, you know, you're going to complain about the mister. Obviously your complaint is legit. I'm just using the stupid analogy here. So yeah, I mean, that's just my thoughts on that. Hopefully that all came out positive because I meant it that way. But, um, you know, the, the Mr. Team has been great for me to work with. You know, sometimes you get into that scenario where they don't realize a problem or if a feature is as big as it could be. And, you know, we're all human, right? So that's why I just made the point about be polite. So, yeah, uh, talk to the team and see what they could do. But I do really think a lot of people are going to be relying on Mr. for a lot of stuff. So we do need to iron these things out eventually. Jake the Naked Snake has an idea for the wiki that maybe if someone's having an issue with their console... You could enter the issues and symptoms, your console revision, and then get a list of known possible fixes. They're not sure how it could be implemented, and they know it's not even really a question. They're just essentially pitching this idea out. So I love the idea, but stuff like that is incredibly hard to implement. And one of the things I've wanted to implement on RetroRGB 
forever is like a product finder style thing. Like, I want to play retro games. Okay, which consoles? And you check off which consoles you want. Do you want to play on a CRT, a flat panel, or both? And then you check that off. And then, you know, do you want to unplug and replug? Do you want it all automated? And I basically wanted this thing to walk through people to, to show exactly what they would need. The problem is we never got past the design stage because then it started to be, well, what if somebody wants to start with this now, but move to that later? The whole thing just, you know, doesn't really work that well. So I would love to see something like that. And I would also like to say that maybe if somebody has an idea for something like that, we could try it out on retro RGB first so that if it all goes to hell, Everybody remembers that the retro RGB problem finder didn't work, not the wiki, which is fine because I, you know, I'm pushing retro RGB to be a community oriented thing that helps promote everybody's doing something, but that's where the opinions are. In the wiki, I want to be just the facts that people could always rely on to, you know, we're all human to the best of everybody's ability. So while something like that would be cool. I don't know how it would even begin to be implemented. So if anybody has an idea, we could very easily try to throw that up on retro RGB, you know, meaning your code. I have no idea how to write that, but we could implement it into that, into the, the console mods wiki search tool or something. And, you know, powered by retro RGB. And that way it takes all of the pressure off of Durf and all of the main contributors who are writing the code for that and are tweaking it. So, or maybe I guess if something already exists for MediaWiki, I don't know, we could figure that out. But I love all ideas like this. They're just way harder than they seem on the surface. And I think while this is a great idea in the short term, I would love to see more effort focused on just getting the info on there and getting it organized so that people could go in and say, I have a Super Nintendo. Uh, what model? Ah, crap. All right, let me pop the top off. It's a one ship dash O2. Okay. And then you get to see from there what's underneath. So that'll get you halfway there. Um, but I do love the idea. So I wanted to read through the question and discuss it with everybody because I thought that was very cool. But but yeah, those are usually harder than, than they seem. So if anybody has... Uh, something like that that they want to try out i could put that on retro rgb and we can give it a try and if it works great immediately you know try to move it on over but i, I think that's a little bit harder than than you'd guess christopher deo has a 21 inch mitsubishi diamond plus 200 which is a pc vga crt monitor and they want to know if it could do 120 hertz refresh rates in the manual it mentions uh, digitally controlled auto scanning is done using an internal microprocessor for horizontal scan frequencies between 30 and 108 kilohertz and vertical scan frequencies between 50 and 160 hertz. So I am very tired. It is the very end of the day. I never record this late, uh, this late at night, but I had some shit happen before. So my very tired brain is reading that as its horizontal scan frequency is 30 to hundred. So 31 kilohertz is VGA 480p, which means that I don't know if it could go up to 120 hertz. Now, it's interesting to see this because horizontal scan frequencies, you could, if you take a 15 kilohertz signal and run that as 120, that's how you're able to get 240p, a 240p look on a VGA monitor. I've still never tried that myself. I really would like to. Um, but I think that means you would need to run the horizontal scan frequency at 120 hertz. I don't think the fact that the vertical can go up to 160 is the issue. 
but I'm also half asleep. So um, would anybody who's smarter than me please mind stepping in and double checking on this one? I think that just means you got yourself a really nice 21 inch monitor that could do normal PC resolutions. So, um, you know, I wish I had better info for you and I'll try following up. I'll look up the specs of that monitor. Maybe we'll see, but hopefully people in the comments would jump in and help as well. Because, uh, I think if there anybody is anybody out there that has that monitor, maybe they already know the answer to that and could double check and confirm. And I, I've also seen spec sheets, not quite get it right. It's rare for a CRT, really rare, but I've seen a few where they, it made it seem like you couldn't do something, but it worked. So I don't, I don't really know, but yeah, I got to wimp out on this one and just say, I, I, I'll try my best to look this one up, but hopefully somebody else could jump in who also owns one and can confirm. Monty has a hypothetical retro gaming ethics question about something that totally happened to their friend or maybe somebody they know. Uh, so let's say hypothetically a 20 inch PVM is damaged in shipping and the packing was terrible. It was a reused box with minimal padding and the monitor still works, but the housing's dented, the frame's out of shape, there's cracks in the plastic, and it's not been opened up to check for the internals for damage, but the tube at least seems good from the outside in use. But the seller says, return it to them in the same box for a refund. The box is trashed and the seller refuses to even talk about a partial refund. So what do you do at that point? Do you send it back in the same box, risking you might be sending a PVM to its death and risking the fact that the original seller could say, hey, this thing's destroyed. This person shipped it in a crappy box. That's why it's destroyed. Um, do you repack it yourself and spend the time and the money to repack it properly and then you take the loss there or do you just eat it and keep it and patch it up and, and try to just use it as is? Um, obviously CRTs aren't being made anymore and they're becoming more scarce, but a scrappy CRT is a permanent reminder of the fragility of existence. Appreciate, appreciate your thoughts on this conundrum. So I do have some pretty strong feelings about this, but the first thing I always want to try to tell people and the first thing I give my best effort to remind myself is there is a human being on the other end of that. Now, the human being might be a really good person going through a bad time. Maybe that's why they had to sell the PVM to begin with. So they threw it in a box, they got it out, they needed their cash. And now they, you know, they can't afford a full refund. They can't afford a partial refund. They're pissed. I sympathize so much with that. I went through that when I, you know, when I had to quit retro RGB for a while, that was what was going on a lot then because I lost my job. I was selling off all my stuff to make sure I was able to still pay my rent. And I got snippy with people that I love and care about, and I didn't mean to. It just happened. And luckily, you know, your friends recognize what's going on and forgive you, but the people who bought stuff from me where maybe something like that happened didn't, and they had no business to. I mean, that in their defense, like, they bought something, it showed up wrong, it's my problem, it's not theirs, period. So I do try to recognize that. But the bottom line is, regardless of if somebody is you know, acting like that because they're going through something, or maybe they're just a piece of shit. Who knows? They exist. <laughs> Plenty of times I've seen people like that out there, including CRT sellers every now and then. The bottom line is it doesn't matter. It's up. It's now fallen into your lap. So it goes to, at this point, where and how you paid. So if this was an eBay purchase, as much as eBay drives me nuts sometimes, this is the time where you call them. Now, 
the trick with eBay is the moment you swear in an email or on the phone, you've lost, period. They, they, they side with the other person, they, you know, they, they note your account, it's, you've immediately lost. So call eBay and kiss some major ass and also just tell them the truth about what happened. Mention that they didn't ship it right. Mention that you didn't get what you paid for. And oh, by the way, if I do what they ask and ship it back, it's going to get worse and they're going to blame me for making it worse and pr- try not to refund my money. You could try the same with PayPal. Um, I've had somewhat okay luck with PayPal with that stuff. PayPal is also frustrating. Um, so, but I mean, if you paid cash, you could be screwed. If you paid cash, I personally would keep it. I would keep it. I would keep, let the word out like, hey, you know, this person sold me a bum CRT. If it's a one-off, whatever. If they're a CRT seller, everybody needs to know that. So, and it sucks because I don't like shaming people. I don't like this weird shitty culture we're in where it's fun to destroy someone's life. But the other side of that is if they're a CRT seller and they can't ship the thing that they're supposed to be doing for a living, then people do need to hear about it. So those are just my opinions. Um, I know I have pretty harsh opinions sometimes. I do always recognize that there's humans involved. People. Just like you, just like me, there's a human there. But, I mean... You know, like I said before, sometimes people are shitty and maybe it's their fault. Maybe it's not, but I don't want you to lose money. And I certainly don't want to see anybody get screwed over by a seller pulling a scam like this. I've seen every scam in the book. And the scary part is every time I warn people about a scam, there's at least a handful of responses that think that I got it wrong and I'm being an asshole about it, which makes me so sad because that means they would have fallen for the scam. So... Maybe this is all legit and it's just an accident. Maybe it's a scam. Maybe it's a piece of shit. I don't know. But your hypothetical happen to a buddy situation, um, I, I would say contact where the money went. See if that could, could somehow resolve it. And if not, then uh, I would just personally, I would just keep it. And, you know, I would try to repair it so that every time I looked at it, I didn't get pissed remembering the time a CRT seller took advantage of me. So just my opinions. Feel free to tell me if you think I got this one wrong, but uh, that's definitely how I would approach it. A couple of questions from Jason Guffey. First, when planning the layout of their soldering workstation, they've noticed some people tend to have multiple tools stacked together, such as two soldering stations or one solder and one desoldering station. Which of these, if any, are safe to stack up and why or why not? My guess, guess, is that as long as you don't cover vent holes, it doesn't really matter. There are some caveats to that with all electronics. If it's in a poorly ventilated corner, you know, you even if you are spacing them correctly, it could still heat up. But you, you would notice, like, if you put your hand near them and they get hot to the touch, then that's def- like, like a little too hot. That's definitely too hot, you know? Like, if you put your hand on it and you're like, oh, that's warm, it's usually fine. But if you're like, ow, wait, what the heck? That's probably too hot and you need to space them out, add some ventilation. But that's really just being overcautious. I have things right up against each other. I have things stacked and none of them have vent holes where I'm doing that. So I don't think it would be an issue. I'm not covering up any spot. But one of the the biggest offenders of that I've seen is people that put... the. This is such a silly analogy, but the the biggest offender of that 
all throughout the years, I had relatives and relatives of friends who hated that there was an ugly metal cable box on top of their beautiful CRT wood furniture thing. Any older people remember those you know, giant, massive pieces of furniture with a little CRT screen in the middle. And they would hate that the cable box would be on there, so they would put like a tablecloth or a drape over it covering all of the vent holes and you'd go in and like, you know, you'd put your hand on it and you'd be shocked that it didn't catch fire from the heat. You know, it's a silly, but true analogy. And hopefully that puts things into perspective, right? So uh, you should be fine. I have mine in a corner that's not so well ventilated, but it's totally fine. Second, uh, Jason uh, remembers during the talk with cousin Scott that I mentioned an Xtron app that can control the Xtron cross points over an app. Yes, not only did I mention it, I was supposed to have written an article or either written a post pointing to the guide or I think I was going to take Doherty's guide and put it on RetroRGB. I think maybe one of the other writers mentioned doing it. I it completely got lost in the midst. But search for uh, Doherty on Schmups. If you, uh, it's probably easier to search for Extron because I forgot how to spell Jesse's screen name. But anyway... <laughs> Uh, but yeah, just put that, uh, search for that up on Schmups and you should be able to find everything that you would need to be able to do it. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's very cool. Lastly, Jason has a pretty interesting question about the future and growth of the retro scene. So for instance, if our society exists for another hundred years, will any of our current retro systems even be playable anymore, regardless of things like recapping or reflowing? Um, so I'm going to stop after every point just to kind of answer these because I think they're an excellent thing to speculate on. And I would always liken electronics and CRT rebuilding to cars. The biggest advantage is you don't need an entire garage and, you know, thousands of dollars worth of tools to work on CRTs and electronics. But it's the same theory in that it's a lot of work and a lot of hours for an experience that's arguably not something that every year less people might care about as a whole. So my guess is that the retro scene will, you know, maybe this WADA scam bullshit, will that bubble will burst, but the interest I don't think will burst. I think we'll lose all the fly-by-night collectors who actually don't really care about games. They would just buy and sell anything they could flip for a profit, which respect, that's cool, that's your thing, but that's not what I'm here for. That's certainly not what Jason's here for. And that's... Those are the bubble bursting, but the the people that are here that are interested in it, just like classic cars, are always going to be interested. Which classic cars are the most popular are probably going to change and evolve as years go on. And there's always going to be those things that are known as like the turds no one cares about that if even more years go by, there's going to be renewed interest in. So I think if things are still running uh, you know, if these consoles are able to be kept alive for another hundred years, they're going to be for things, very niche markets like the car club meetups and all of this stuff. And um, I, I believe it's my guess that something like any of the pre CD consoles that are kept in good condition are probably going to last longer than those in past uh, past it, meaning like in newer and it's because of how many moving parts, the size of the chips and the dies and all that stuff, and, and just the quality to which they were built based on a lot of other factors. Um, and, you know, other people smarter than me have agreed on that. So that's just not some shoot from the hip speculation. 
But I think for as long as these things exist, there's going to be people that care about them. It's just the collector bubble is going to burst at some point, and the actual interest is going to very slowly step down. And I think what's going to keep these going is FPGA recreations. And then as PCs get way faster, even software emulation is going to reach a point where it's so fast that it there will be no lag at all. It'll be exactly like the original, but you could render it in 12K, plug into the Matrix, and be Mario running down Mario 1. Like, it's going to reach a point at, eventually where all of the recreations are going to be equal to or better than the original. Might take a while longer, but it's definitely going to happen. Um, to keep going through, though, if all game consoles in the near future are basically going to be all digital PCs, does that mean our entire hobby is a direct expiration date? Or do you think people will always take it upon themselves to find new workarounds or restoration solutions to keep our physical retro media going? So I think much like cars, it's going to reach a point where people's homebrew solutions are the only way to keep them running. So right now, you know, you could choose to recap your original Genesis or you could choose to do a triple bypass and then only replace the capacitors that are left as part of the remaining circuit. And there might be a point in time that comes where you can't get certain capacitors anymore or you can't get certain RAM modules anymore at all. They're all just dead. So the only replacement is the electronic equivalent to bending your own metal and making your own fender. You know, you do an FPGA implementation of the RAM modules or something like that. And, you know, you would technically have the original hardware with a bunch of shoehorned stuff in there. So I think that's probably what's going to have to happen. Um, is all of this just a fleeting moment in time? No, because most people who go through the trouble to mod this, to mod these consoles and to take the time to restore them, there's three main reasons. The, the, the crew that I usually run with do it because they love electronics. And the fact that they get to do it with video games is an amazing bonus, but they're in it for the restoration. They're in it for the fun, just like the car builder who just day after day sits there and tweaks and rebuilds all of these beautiful cars. It's kind of the same thing. And then there's the people that just really enjoy playing. So spending all this time to restore it, the that might not be as necessary going forward, especially if we get perfect FPGA recreations. Um, and then, of course, then there, there are the people that do it for the historian point of view, you know, whether they like making sure to, you know, they just get really obsessed with a piece of history. And it doesn't have to be your childhood. I know plenty of people that just fell in love with, you know, the Egyptian pyramids. They clearly weren't born back then, but, you know, it's not like they're remembering their childhood climbing up the pyramid, but it's a time that really that interests them. So we're going to have those people as well. Um, so some... Another interesting thought to add to that is what about third-party manufacturers like HD Retrovision? So what if 50 years from now, all original Xboxes are dead? All the capacitors leaked out, you know, none of the machines could keep up. And essentially, it's just infinitely easier to, to not use those. Like it's almost, it's very expensive to rebuild it, replace all the parts, have a, a totally rebuilt motherboard. You know, what if it just reaches a point where it just, there's almost none left then? What happens to HD Retrovision? Um, well, or, or the companies like that. That's kind of the same answer as when the internet started booming and all of these companies had to evolve their models. You either evolve with the times or 
you, you know, this becomes a side hobby that you barely pay attention to, or you just fall off and can't do it anymore. But that's kind of life, right? I mean, that's like, imagine what what it was like if you were the top morning radio TV or morning radio person, radio TV, geez, you know, in, in the nineties. And now who listens to radio anymore? I haven't turned on a radio in minimum 10 years, but it's probably more than that. So what are you going to do? Hold on to it or just start a podcast and get even better at that? So, you know, could I could be wrong about that one, but that's my guess. So, uh, you know, Jason also made the point that they didn't mean to seem dour or pessimistic. They just wanted to uh, kind of just talk about this as a whole, curious about it. And I, I thought it was a very interesting question to pose. And hopefully I had a mildly interesting answer to it. But at the very least, today, that's how I feel about that stuff. But who knows? Maybe as I, as we all learn stuff together, and my opinion will change. But I, I think anybody that loves this stuff, they're going to be around for a while. And there's going to be more people jumping in every day. I just think the only thing that's going to go away is this, you know, I, I fake paid $2 million for Mario 64, which was totally some other kind of scam. I'm sure it'll come out eventually. <laughs> Photosphane was thinking about connecting their AVS to a CRT monitor, but want to know if there's any good HDMI to VGA converters out there. There's a few things to think about, and it's not as easy as that. I'm assuming you mean the retro USB FPGA-based NES, that AVS. Um, and as far as simply plugging that into a VGA monitor... Any of the HDMI to VGA solutions that I link, retrorgb.link forward slash cheap DAC, any of those will work. Uh, the problem is how your monitor will handle it. I've seen the rare case that some VGA CRT monitors just don't understand what 720p is and they, they just don't accept the signal, even though they might be able to accept 1280 by 1024, 1280 by 768 messes with them. It doesn't happen often, but I have seen that. What would more likely happen is you have the entire image jammed into the screen. So it, the black bars on the left and right, because remember, it's a four by three image displayed with black bars on it, uh, or you could have it centered. If it's the opposite, if it fills the screen top to bottom, but you have black bars on the left and right, you're in luck. Go into the AVS settings, stretch it widescreen which, you know, don't ever do that on a flat panel, but that would be perfect because it'll fill that 4x3 CRT perfectly. And with interpolation, you shouldn't get any shimmering. It should just look fine. You're not going to get scan lines that look right. You could try turning on the scan lines. I'm not sure what that's going to do, but at least you're gaming on a CRT. It's not going to have any lag. You know, everything should be fine in that scenario. If it's centered and letterboxed, so if it's if it's displayed so there's black bars on all sides, I don't know how you would handle it, and that would depend on whatever CRT you're using. You could use the trick I just said and stretch it all the way wide and then use your CRT's controls to stretch it top to bottom, um, but I, that's really going to have to be something that you mess with. But the good news is all you really need to do is buy one of those very cheap digital to analog converters. They are zero latency. You should be able to do all that, no problem. And if you get it working, try a light gun. I don't think it would work, but I mean, why not, right? <laughs> Who knows? The way the NES light gun works, it's way more tolerant. So it might, whatever. But uh, yeah, all you would have to use is that. And the good news is if for whatever reason the DAC doesn't work, now you just have a cool tool in your toolbox that I guarantee you'll use again at some other point. 
Well, that's it for this week. If you're new to these Q&As, ask any question you'd like wherever it is you support in the latest Q&A post. The way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an old post. Plus, like you saw today, I really just enjoy reading these by scrolling down, reading them in real time, and giving you my honest, my honest, my honest answers in the moment, which obviously sometimes are sharper than others. I'm a little tired today, so hopefully today's came out okay. I, I'm in a great mood and had a wonderful time doing them, but uh, you know, we're all human and my skills aren't very sharp at the moment. So hopefully I pulled this one off good enough. Uh, but thank you for everybody who participates. I do enjoy doing these. And of course, and especially thank you to anybody who supports in any way possible, because it is you that is keeping all of this stuff going. The website, the podcast, the Q&As, and all of the insane behind-the-scenes research, which I don't ever want to stop doing. It's it's pretty cool to see some of the things that we could make happen in the gaming and just electronic scene. So thank you all for continuing this. Please keep spreading the word, and I'll see you next week.